Our topic this week, continuing and bridging from Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, what is going to be the devil's end? Will he surely die? Yes. Right, so or another subtitle, How Hot is Hell? So this is going to be a hot topic today. So we saw there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Right? Pretty plain words, right? God didn't have to go into a whole big long uh, thing on that, right? Makes it very clear. Don't eat from that tree. If you do, you will surely die. And then within a few verses in chapter 3, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So who is telling the truth? Will the devil and those who follow him surely die or not surely die? Whom do you believe? Do you believe God? Or do you believe the devil's lie? Now, the majority of people in the world have been believing the devil's lie. And you may be surprised to find out that you have been deceived and have been believing the devil's lie. Now, this is the very first lie that he used. Probably knew that if he would have blown it here, if he would not have used, if this would not have worked on Eve, he might not have had another opportunity. His, he would have been exposed, she would have been onto him, and she probably wouldn't have fallen for anything else he would have had to say. So I would imagine he watched her for quite some time, plotted, planned, just the perfect deception for humanity. And this is the one he chose. You will not surely die. And he's been using it, it's his favorite. He's been using it ever since then. It is taught, again, just about in every culture that there exists and has existed, that uh, anthropologists have studied, that we don't surely die. And it's taught still today in religious circles and even in Bible circles, Bible-believing circles. So let's take a look a little bit at this and let's look at some of the history here. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So several times it mentions being cast out, so the devil was cast out of heaven and cast to this earth and that he deceives the whole world. He's a liar and he's a deceiver, and this was his first lie, his best lie, and he continues to use this lie to deceive the whole earth. Then in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, I cast you to the ground. Right, there's a parallel chapter with chapter 12, Revelation. We looked quite extensively at those two chapters and some other verses in the Bible about the devil and learned quite a bit about the devil in those verses. And so this chapter in Ezekiel 28 aptly describes the devil. 
that he was beautiful and that he was there and perfect in God's kingdom and the mountain of God, but he was cast, just like we read in Revelation 12, that he was cast out and he was cast to this earth, he was cast to the ground. Well, in this chapter, that's verse 17, it continues on and says, and then prophetically of what's going to happen to the devil, you sinned, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub. I brought fire from your midst, it devoured you. I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Amen? Amen. Yes. Amen. Very plain words. The specific words of what's going to happen to the devil. Destroyed, devoured, ashes on the earth, no more forever. Does that sound like dying or not surely dying? Surely dying. Surely dying. <laughs> yes. But that's why he doesn't like this. He doesn't like being exposed. He doesn't like um, it being known what's going to happen to him. He's in denial. He doesn't want to believe it. And he remains stubborn and against it, and he wants to keep people in the dark regarding this. So as we look at just some of those words already, just from that one verse, so ashes on the face of the earth, no more forever, destroyed, devoured, surely die. From those verses out of the Bible, those words out of the Bible, compared with a typical picture of what the devil's doing and is going to be doing for eternity, right, is that a typical picture? Right, the devil there torturing people, God kind of pushing them into hell and pushing them over the cliff and pushing them into the fire where they remain and burn and are in pain and agony. And the devil there stoking the flames. That's a typical picture. Typical being taught. Very popular teaching. Even in religious circles, back in the 1800s, there was a man, Jonathan Edwards, had a famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he went around and revivals were taking place. People were going out of the churches crying, screaming, help me, God. Turning their lives over to the Lord for fear of hell. Not wanting, he described uh, being dangled, God dangling people like a, like a spider over the fires and with a, with a cord and he put them down and then just before they had singed too much, he'd take them back out and put them back down and out and now I'm just, just terrifying people. God, God of fear or God of love? Using fear as a method to try and drive people to God. So which sounds, does that sound at all like the Bible? Just from that one verse, we read, ashes upon the face of the earth, no more forever, destroyed, devoured, surely died. But that's the popular teaching, that's the popular paintings. Dante's Inferno, that's a popular concept of what the devil's going to be doing. As if he's uh, managing hell for God. That he's in charge of it. Let's look at some other verses. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. If his head gets bruised, if he gets crushed, what's going to happen to the serpent? He's going to die. He's going to surely die. Right? He's going to be crushed. He's going to be 
have his head damaged, broken up, he's going to die. But what about the rest of the evil angels, right? So that's what we just read about the devil. He's going to get crushed, he's going to be devoured, going to be no more ashes on the face of the earth, destroyed. But what about the rest of the evil angels? What about humans that listen to Satan's lies instead of God's truth? Will they surely die, or will they not surely die? Let's look at some text. Psalm 11:6. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone. A burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 9, 5. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Very similar to what we were just reading about the devil. Destroyed, no more, blotted out forever. Psalm 21, verse 9. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. The fire shall devour them. In a little while, the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look for his place, but it shall be no more. Psalm 37.10. We'll come back to that in a little bit, but you will look for his place. Not only will they be devoured, not only will they be destroyed, not only will they be no more, but the place. You will look for his place, and it shall be no more. The wicked will be no more, and the place will be no more. Pretty plain text. Right? Pretty plain writing. Pretty clear. Should be anyway. Psalm 37, verse 20. The wicked shall perish. The enemies of the Lord shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. Psalm 52, 3 and 5. You love evil more than good, lying rather than righteousness. God will destroy you forever and uproot you from the land of the living. If you're not in the land of the living, then where are you? The land of the dead, right? That's the only two choices, right? Perish, destroyed, vanish away like smoke. Strong words, very descriptive words. Lots of different words used over and over again. Psalm 112, verse 10. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Psalm 145, 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Melt away. Right? Like a piece of ice. Right? Melt and it melts away. There's no more ice. It's no more. It's gone. It's vanished. It's perished. Destroyed. Removed. They'll be gnashing of teeth for a time while they're burning, but then we'll vanish away, we'll perish like smoke, we'll be destroyed. Zephaniah 1, verse 17, Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out on the dust and their flesh like refuge. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of, the of his jealousy. For he will make a speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. So in the day of the Lord's wrath, 
And the Lord is able to deliver them, for he will. What tense is that? He will deliver them. He will make a speedy release. The day of the Lord. Future tense. The day of the Lord. And he will devour them by fire. Romans 6, 28. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Yeshua the Messiah. Right? You may not read Zephaniah every day, right? But Romans 6, 28. The choices are, wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Yeshua the Messiah. That's the two choices. Death or eternal life. It doesn't say eternal life in, in hell or eternal life in heaven. Doesn't even have to say where the eternal life is because eternal life will be for everyone, everywhere, who accepts Yeshua the Messiah. Or the other choice is death. That's how it describes the choices. Eternal life. Only those who follow him receive the gift of eternal life. If you don't have the gift of eternal life, you have death. How about John 3.16? How many of you could quote John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Again, very clear, two choices. Very popular text, probably the most popular text in all the world. Probably most known text out of the Bible. Choices are perishing or everlasting life. Again, it's not everlasting life in heaven or everlasting life in hell. The choice is everlasting life, period, or perishing. Very clear. Very plain. Yet how many have not seen this? It's amazing. Because they've been deceived with an overwhelming deception from the devil that you will not surely die. So let's look at just some of those words. And we could have spent more. There's more money, more Bible text that we could have quoted tonight on that. And, but we're going to continue on with the, uh, other aspects of it. But just from that list so far. Ashes upon the earth. No more forever. Destroyed. Devoured. Surely die. Blotted out, perish, vanish, death, melt away, utterly consumed, speedy riddance. Pretty plain words. Very descriptive words. And used over and over again. That's what the Bible says. Those are the quotes we just read. Compare that with the picture, another type of picture. People in agony, writhing in pain, Uncomfortable continually, forever and ever and ever, for billions and billions of years, burning and heat and thirsty and tortured. Is that the picture of God? What about the soul? Even after we look at all those texts, people go, but, 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 but what about the soul? <laughs> what will happen to it? Well, where should we go? Where should we find the answer to what about the soul? Should we go to Jonathan Edwards or some preacher somewhere? 
Should we go to the global Googlers or who should we believe? Who should we go to? Where do we go? Go to the Bible. All right, so let's go to the Bible. What does the Bible say of what happens to the soul? Ezekiel 18, verse 4. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Yeah, pretty clear. The soul also will die. Soul that sinneth, it will die. Psalm, I, I, rather Isaiah 10, verse 17. The light of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. It will consume both soul and body. So what will happen to the soul? It will die. It will be consumed. Now maybe you don't like Isaiah. Maybe you don't like Ezekiel. <laughs> How about Yeshua? Quoted in Matthew, chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you believe God? Or do you believe the devil? The soul will die, it will be destroyed, it will be consumed. That's what God says. The devil says, it will not surely die. Whom do you choose to believe? Whom have you been believing thus far? The devil can harass you on this earth. He can even kill you in this earth. But he can't destroy your soul. But God is able and will destroy both soul and body in hell. Some people hear these verses and they say, oh, you don't believe in hell. I believe in hell. I just believe it's hotter than they believe. I believe hell is a lot hotter than they believe. They believe it's hot just to cause enough pain and suffering and agony, but not enough to consume and destroy. I believe it's so hot that it's going to, as the Bible said, turn them to ashes. They're going to perish. They're going to vanish away like smoke. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be consumed. They're going to be devoured. If someone said they devoured the pie, right? That means there's no more pizza, right? They devoured it. It's gone. Completely eaten up. Very descript words. Hell is much hotter than most people teach. It's hot enough to destroy both soul and body in hell. How complete is the destruction of the wicked? Malachi 4, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven. All the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. The day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Again, talking future tense, the day of the Lord, day is coming, fire, 
will burn them up, neither root nor branch. Now, a friend of mine, Glenn Elzinger, he took this picture on the ranch where, where he manages, and this was from a fire, a very, very intense fire that ran through, through his ranch uh, several years ago. And he took this picture this year, and still today, there is no weeds. That's a great weed killer. Intense fire. It just burned the, the, the soil. The nutrients in the soil is totally dead. It's just so hot. Just totally destroyed the ground. No grass, no weeds, nothing. But you look at the trunks of the tree. What's on those trunks? Branches. No leaves. Trees are dead, but there's still branches. And if the trunks are still standing, what's in the ground? Roots. But the Bible says that the fire of hell will be so hot, it will leave neither root nor branch. Maybe Malachi probably never even saw a fire that, that was that hot. It totally consumed such a, uh, a forest that there were no even branches, no even roots under the ground left. He's describing it again hotter than anything that anyone can picture or imagine or seen. And again, this was a very, very intense fire here that took place on that ranch, at that section. And yet, years later, still roots, still branches, no weeds. God describing fire that'll leave neither root nor branch. And of course, it's not talking about trees as much as soul and body is the idea. Nothing left. It continues, same chapter, verse 3, Malachi 4. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. That's very similar to what we read about the devil in Ezekiel 28, that the devil was going to become ashes on the face of the earth. And here it's saying that the wicked will be ashes under the soles of your feet. They will share the same fate as the devil. They will surely die, burned to ashes. That's how hot, that's how intense, leaving nothing left. And then 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says a similar thing. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, their destruction is an example that they became ashes as an example of what's going to happen to the wicked. Jude says almost the exact same thing in Jude chapter 7 as Sodom and Gomorrah, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, very popular today, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Eternal fire. Is Sodom and Gomorrah still burning today? No. No, I believe this is the site of one of either Sodom or Gomorrah. We take our groups there. But it's eternal in its results. It burned eternally. It burned till there were no roots, no branches, no nothing, no soul, no, no nothing. Everything destroyed. And you see up in the right-hand corner of the picture, as our groups go out there, almost every time we find little pebbles, 
but almost all ash. It's all just like ash. You just touch it and the whole thing crumbles in your hand like talcum powder. Leave the white chalky substance in your hand, just like ashes. But then every so often you find a little pebble of something, and we take that little pebble, I've done it with matches, done it with a little lighter. You take a lighter to a rock, what happens? Nothing. <laughs> take a lighter to these little, once in a while we find these little pebbles, and it begins to burn up. Sometimes a flame, it just kind of gets real hot and red, and I've had it melt the spoon, a little dip it in the spoon, turn the spoon black, gets real hot, colorful, smells like eggs. What is it? Sulfur. Sulfur and brimstone. Yeah. That's the remains of Sodom and War. I believe those are the sites. That's the remains, nothing but ashes. It's an example of what the eternal, eternal fire will be. No longer continuing to burn eternally, but the results are eternal. Total, complete, till there was nothing, nothing, nothing left. Not a building, nothing left. Just ashes. And left there, as an example, some people believe it's under the Dead Sea, well, then it wouldn't be an example. I believe this is the site. It's left there, as Jude said, as Peter said, left as an example for us to be able to go and see what will happen to the devil, what will happen to the wicked. They will surely die. They will become ashes under the soles of our feet. So where the hell is it? Where is it going to be? Well, where do we go? Where do we look? The Bible. We've actually already seen it. We'll look some more. We'll look again in Ezekiel 28. We read this. Verse 16. You sinned, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub. I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth, in the sight of all who saw you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Right there before our eyes. On this earth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, the heavens and the earth are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment, a perdition of ungodly men, looking for and hastening on to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So this earth, a day of judgment reserved in the future, when God will dissolve this planet. He will burn them up right here. This is where the devil will be destroyed. Hell on earth. You think it's hot now. You ain't seen nothing yet. This planet is going to get real hot. It's going to bake it. And bake it so much it's going to melt. Dissolved. The elements will melt with the fervent heat. All the trees, the roots, the branches, the cars, the plastic, the metal, the rubber, the styrofoam, the plastics, the Everything, the glass, everything will melt away. 
everything. All the garbage we've been collecting, all the big size of Texas or three times the size of Texas of garbage floating out in Pacific Ocean, he's got to melt it all away. He's got to destroy it all. We've polluted this planet. Graffiti, the blacktop, the concrete, non-biodegradable junk we make. He's got to destroy it all. He's going to melt it all. And with melting all that garbage, he's going to destroy the wicked, both soul and body, right here on this planet. He's going to remake this planet. In order to remake this planet, he's got to destroy this planet. Just like us, we have to die to self to be born anew. It's the same principle. Lived out. To be able to make new, be born again. Have to die first. In order to make a new heavens and new earth, he's got to get rid of the old. It melts it all out. Destroys it, burns it up. Turns it to ashes. Makes great fertilizer. And then out of those ashes, he'll create a new heavens and new earth. Destroying this old, wicked planet. In Revelation 20, verse 9, says basically the same thing. They, the wicked, went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Same verse, Revelation 20, verse 9. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Devoured them where? On the face of the earth. The same chapter, just a few verses later, this is the second death. Their final death, their complete death, their judgment death, the day of their judgment. This earth becomes hell, this earth becomes this flaming fire, melting with fervent heat and destroying them, and they surely die. They experience the second death, the eternal death. Both soul and body destroyed consumed, eaten away. And in the very next verse, still in Revelation 20, verse 15, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This earth becomes the lake of fire. This earth becomes a ball of fire. There's one big molten mass of fire, melting everything, destroying everything. All the pollution in the air, everything that we have, all the Junk that we've made, all of it destroyed. Electronic, all that garbage, everything. Melts it down, back to the original state, destroys it all. And the wicked with it, and the devil with it. How long it's going to burn, the Bible doesn't tell us. Now maybe for the, those who, because he's really burning sin is what he's burning. God's consuming fire to sin. He's destroying the sin on the earth. The sin in people's hearts. And so maybe those who have more sins will burn longer because that's the fuel. That could be. And so maybe they'll suffer longer. I don't know how long it is, but however long it is, God is just and fair and right. And he will enact justice, a good justice, a fair justice, a right justice. And he will destroy them and he will destroy them completely. Burn this whole planet up as hell. There won't be some speck somewhere. There won't be some place in the universe where, where there'll be a hell somewhere. It's not the center of the earth. It's not somewhere in the universe where he's going to have billions of wicked people. No, this planet, he just destroys it all. Right here. 
in a just way, in a fair way, whatever is justice for however long it takes. And when all the fuel is burned up, when everything is melted away, when everything is destroyed, when the soul and body is destroyed, when the devil is destroyed, when all the sin is destroyed, just like any other fire, it goes out. It becomes ashes, there's no more fuel, and it goes out. And that lake of fire then becomes a new planet. And he creates a new heavens and new earth. Now a logical question that many people ask, why would a loving God burn sinners in hell for millions of years? And it is that question that has led multitudes of people to turn away from God. Because they've been taught God is love, God is love, but if you don't like him and if you disobey him, he's going to get you, he's going to burn you for billions and billions and billions of years in torture and in pain you will never stop. And they go, huh, something's not clicking there. Something's not making sense. What kind of love is that? What kind of forgiveness is that? What kind of mercy is that? And they cannot make the connect because it's impossible. And they then turn from God and they reject God. Thus it's Satan's masterful deception. Not as a straight out lie to, Disagreeing with God, God said you'll surely die, you will not surely die. But on top of that, the devil then blames God for the torture. Makes him a tyrant. That is God, right? Because who would be keeping him alive? Who's the author of life? Who'd be keeping the fire alive? Right? Even if the devil is there as they painted and depicted. He'd still only be managing it. God would still be the one that's sending them there and keeping them alive. Giving them the gift of eternal life. But they don't have the gift of eternal life. Thus they die. But the masterful deception is to paint God as a tyrant. That's the real issue. Is truth and error, right? So we're able to look at truth logically. The truth... The Bible says over and over and over again they'll be devoured, dissolved, destroyed, consumed, banished, perished. That's, again, logical truth regarding the error, but the real issue is the character of God. Is God really love? Even to the wicked. Here in this country we have a, a rule that's supposed to be enacted that, that uh, the punishment is to meet the crime and not beyond the crime. Well, who's more just, this nation or God? Will God punish someone who's lived 80, 90 years in denial of him, in rejection of him, in sin? Will he torture him for billions and billions and billions of years, nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, never allowing him to die? That's not justice. That's not love. God loves the wicked. And even in his love for the wicked, he will deal justly and righteously, and thus he will burn them up and will destroy them. Satan tricked Eve by getting her to think, I'm going to live on. And then he tricks people thinking God is a tyrant. Worse than the worst. Hitler's and all. They eventually killed us. 
way most preachers depict God is that he keeps them alive and tortures them. On and on and on and on. That's the biggest lie. That's the big lie. Against God's character of justice, truth, mercy, and love. Ezekiel 18, verse 32, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. He's love. He doesn't want anyone to die. He doesn't want the wicked to die. He takes no pleasure in it, but he's still just. And in Isaiah 28, verse 21, the Lord will rise up, he will be angry, and he may do his, that he may do his work, his strange work, his unusual act, do not be mockers, for I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined upon the whole earth. God's going to destroy this earth. He's going to destroy the wicked on this earth. It's his strange work. It's out of character for him. But he's still going to do it because it's still justice. It's still right. And it's still loving. It's loving to the wicked, that they don't continue in wickedness forever and ever and ever with their hearts bent on, on uh, enmity against God in anger and bitterness and in rage and in mercy to the righteous, not to be tormented by them. So in justice and fairness, he does do his strange work. So the devil gets people pouncing in a pendulum, one that this God is so mean that he's such a tyrant that he keeps people alive for billions and billions and years and trillions of years, torturing them in, in, in a burning lake somewhere, nonstop forever. Or then they come up with, oh, but God is so love. No, no, no. God doesn't destroy anyone. Everyone goes to heaven. God is love. Everyone's so, God is so forgiving. God won't hold anything against anyone. If God is so just, oh, we're not that bad. All right, so we didn't follow him. All right, we rejected him a little bit. Didn't murder anyone. No, God will certainly, oh, you ever been to a funeral where they weren't in heaven? Where they weren't in some better place? Going to some better place, right? That's part of the lie. They don't surely die. But no, there is a balance. God is just and justice, and he will enact justice. It's a strange act. He doesn't like doing it, but he's still going to have to do it. Just as you, if you had a, an animal, you had a pet, you loved that pet, you raised that pet, but it comes down with rabies, out of mercy and love to that pet, you're not going to allow it, you're not going to put it in a cage and let it go nuts there. You have to put it to sleep, you have to put it down. In love for it, in love that it doesn't bite some other animal or bite one of your kids. In mercy for all, in love for all, and that's what God's going to do with the wicked. In mercy and in love, he destroys them. But, 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 what about? If we look at dozens and dozens and dozens of texts, plain text, John 3, 16, Romans 8, some clear text, plain text. Consume, perish, burn, destroy. People go, oh, but, 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 what about this text? What about that text? And granted, there are a few texts, maybe four texts, that do seem to say the opposite. But one Bible principle is you never take a few odd texts and use them to override the vast majority of texts in the Bible. Now, everything needs to come in harmony together, but you, you, you take the majority and the clearest texts and you base your teaching on that, and then you find how those other texts come in harmony with that, not the other way around. 
not listening to the devil. So let's take a look at these texts. We're not afraid of these texts. Let's take a look at these texts, since you asked. <laughs> what about the rich man? Oh, the rich man and Lazarus, right? What's up with the rich man and Lazarus? All right, let's take a look at that parable. It's either a parable or it's a literal thing that's being described there. One or the other, it can't be uh, anything else, right? It's either a story to teach a lesson or just a parable story, or it's a literal description of what it's like for the wicked and the righteous. So let's take a look and see which one it's got to be. If it's literal, well, then Abraham's bosom must be very large. Because it says that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, right? So if all the righteous, wicked go in Abraham's bosom, you know, he's got just this growing chest there. He's got this bosom that's just humongous. And everybody goes into uh, Abraham's bosom, right? That's what it says, right? So he's either there, he's actually there, or he's not, right? So if it's literal, then let's take the words literally. Two, people in heaven can see and have conversations with those in hell. Because in the parable, that's what happens. And if it's literal then the rich man's going to be able to talk to Lazarus all through eternity. Every once in a while, whenever he wants, he's going to be able to call up there. Hey, Abraham, hey, Lazarus, it's hot down here. That's what happens. You okay with that? And souls have fingers, eyes, and tongues. Just dip your finger in the water and touch my tongue. Now, I want you to picture in your mind, let's say we're in eternity, in heaven, a bunch of us decide we're going to go on a field trip, and one of our company angels takes us, and we're flying through the galaxies, and we're visiting some planets, and, and some other places that God has created, and and his angel's introducing us to seraphim, and cherubim, and other created beings that God has out there, and, and we're we're flying through, we're seeing some nebulas and some amazing colors and shapes and, and uh, rings and moons and all kinds of things that are out there he's created. And we're just traveling along, right? We're just having a wonderful time, place after place. And, and, and we're between galaxies at one time and, and we're floating along and flying along. And, and then one of us says, hold on a second. I smell something. So we all stop and we all start sniffing and yeah, it smells like smoke. Yeah, I smell that too. And the accompanying angel says, oh, pay no attention to that. That's just hell. Don't pay any attention. Now, I want you to picture in your mind for a second someone that you know, someone that you love. Maybe they've already died. And for all intensive purposes, for their, from their profession, out of their own mouths, their own lives, all their lives, they have refused God. They didn't want to know about God. They don't want his forgiveness. They don't want his love. They don't want his grace. They don't believe in him. They've said that over and over again. Every opportunity that's come to them, they've rejected it. For all intents and purposes, they're not going to be in heaven. Oh, we can deny, we can sit in denial and say, but maybe, you know, maybe in their coma, in their deathbed, they, they had a thought that came to their mind. Maybe they were still hearing me sing to them and preach to them and read to them and they gave their hearts to the Lord. Whatever, you can be in denial if you want. But for all intents and purposes, think of someone. Maybe a parent, maybe an aunt, an uncle, sibling, child, friend, high school buddy, someone. 
Well, in reality, right, the way to destruction is wide. The vast majority are going to go there. You must know someone who most likely will not be in heaven. Think about that person now. So there we are with the attending angel. We're all there and we're smelling the smoke. And then all of a sudden you hear your name called. And it's that person. That person you were just thinking about. You recognize the voice. They call you by name. And they say, it's hot here. It is so hot here. You wouldn't believe it's so hot. It's never felt anything like this. I'm in pain all the time. I can't get comfortable anywhere. I lay this way, I lay there, I turn this way. I'm in, I'm, I'm in pain all the time. Please, please, just give me a little bit of water. Can you just relieve the suffering just a little bit for just a moment? Just give me a little bit of water, please. And your love and your mercy, you reach to your water bottle. And the angel says, oh, oh no, you can't do that. You can't give them anything. Just forget about them. Come on, we're on our journey. We're, we're running late now. Let's get going. Forget about that. And we go flying off and have a wonderful time. Now, if that parable is literal, then that would be taking place every so often all throughout eternity. Because that's what happens in the parable. And you either need to accept it as a parable and learn lessons from it, or believe it's literal and realize that for all eternity, you're going to hear your name called by various different people calling out for your help, and you're not going to be able to help them. And that would not be heaven, would it? So let's take a look at the parable and see what Yeshua was trying to teach us. Now, the parable is only in one chapter in the Bible, but it's still there, so that's good. What is its true meaning? Riches are not necessarily a sign of divine favor. Right? The disciples plainly believed that if you were rich, that means God was blessing you. Right? It's easier for Yeshua said, it's easier for a camel to go through a rich man uh, through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go into heaven. The disciples were shocked. Then who on earth could be in heaven? But in the parable, he switches it. The rich man is not in heaven. So that's lesson one, number one that's real important for them to learn, and for us as well. We idolize the rich. Two, there is no second chance after death. Neither can they go from one side, neither can you go from the other. This is it. That's it. Here on this earth is where we make our decisions for God. It's amazing how many people teach us so much an extra chance. There's no extra chance. It's here and now that we make our decisions for or against God. And that's one of the things that Yeshua was trying to clearly teach there. There's not going to be any other chance. There's no, this is it. And miracles are not a sign of divine favor. The rich man said, if Lazarus will just go, Lazarus, Abraham, please send Lazarus to go and, and speak to my relatives. Certainly, if they saw one who was raised from the dead, they would believe. And what did Abraham tell him in the parable? Even if one was raised from the dead, if they believe not Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even a miracle like that. Believe Moses and the prophets. We just looked at Moses and the prophets. We looked at text after text after text. Believe the Bible. If we don't believe the Bible, it won't matter what miracles, what happens, 
raised from the dead, whatever. That's what Yeshua was teaching. They have to believe the Bible, get their truths from the Bible, get their understanding from the Bible, from the Word of God. Because even if someone's raised from the dead, they won't believe it. And in the parable, there's the rich man and Lazarus. And soon after Yeshua teaches this parable, what does he do? He raises a literal Lazarus from the dead. And how do the people respond? They want to kill Lazarus. They still don't believe. They haven't believed Moses and the prophets regarding who the Messiah is. And even though Lazarus is raised from the dead, they said, kill that Lazarus guy. He's testifying that Yeshua raised him from the dead. We've got to get rid of him. And so the parable was set up, setting the stage for this miracle and telling us to believe God's word, not looking for signs and wonders. That's what the parable is about. And then they say, oh, Mark 9, 43, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Well, the worm, the worm is eating all the garbage. It doesn't die. The worm continues its work, completes its work. The fire is not quenched. What does it mean the fire is not quenched? Well, in Jeremiah 17, verse 27, it says, Then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Is Jerusalem still burning today? No. Is the Babylon destruction of Jerusalem still burning today? No. But it was not quenched. It was not put out halfway. It was not put out while it was burning. It burned. It burned completely. Nebuchadnezzar burned the city down. Destroyed the city. Wasn't able to be occupied anymore. The way it was. He destroyed it. It was not quenched. It was not put out. Right? Your house is on fire and the firemen come out and they, they're able to keep it to just one room. They quenched it before it devoured the whole house. And they come, they do some repairs on that one room. They, they, they get the smoke out and they're able to get back in. But if they don't quench it, then it burns until it burns down. That's what it means it won't be quenched. It won't be put out halfway. It's going to burn until there's nothing but ashes. Revelation 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Well, the smoke ascends. I mean, you can put out a fire and the smoke continues to go. The smoke will continue to ascend forever. It just keeps going. It disperses more and more, but it just continues to disperse. Days after a fire, it's still smoky out. The smoke is still there. The fire is out. The results of the destruction will be forever. The result, the smoke, is the result of the fire. The result of God's destruction will be forever. But he's not continuing to torment them forever. The smoke of their torment, not their torment forever, just the smoke forever. Matthew 25, verse 46. These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Yeah, it says punishment, not punishing, <laughs> right? Everlasting punishment, not everlasting punishing. There is a difference. And here again, we have the, the, the choice. Everlasting punishment 
which is death or eternal life. Right? Again, it's not between eternal life in heaven or eternal life in hell. The choice is eternal life, period, or eternal punishment, which the eternal punishment is eternal death. And that's what it says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. So the punishment is everlasting destruction. The destruction, the punishment is everlasting, not the punishing. I think that's pretty clear if we're able to speak English. Right? Everlasting punishment is not everlasting punishing. It is everlasting destruction. So they grab these few little texts in order to believe Satan's lie that they will not surely die. Why do they have to jump over so many hoops to believe such a horrible, horrendous mischaracterization about God of love? Because it's satanic. That's why. It's Satan's number one lie from the beginning, and he continues to perpetuate it. And just seeing these texts and just coming to a realization of this is not going to be enough. It's going to take a miracle of God to change our thought patterns. We need to pray and ask God to change our thinking in this area. Otherwise, we'll just fall back into the same rut. It's such an overmasterful deception of the devil. They deceive people for centuries regarding. Now, we need the power of God to do it, to liberate us. You know, Obadiah, verse 16, and they shall be as though they had never been. Again, that's a loving God. Right? They will receive their punishment, they will receive their flame, they will receive their pain, their torture, whatever, it'll last forever long at last, and then they will become ashes, and then they will be as if they were nothing. I can live with that. And I think of the loved ones that I pictured in my mind when we were saying, you know, someone who, who probably won't be in heaven. I miss them. I'll miss them for eternity. But I can live with the fact that they made their choice. They rejected God. They rejected every opportunity he gave them. No doubt God will show us all the opportunities that they had and how in love he tried this and tried that. And they rejected it and rejected it. And God in his mercy allowed them to have what they wanted. And he let them die. And then there'll be no more forever. And I can live with that. I can love a loving God who's merciful even to the wicked and allows them to be separated from him, to be separated from life, the giver of life, and then to experience death and to be as if they never were. Just blotted out. Their names blotted out, vanish away like smoke, melt away, and be gone. A whole lot better than thinking they're in some corner of the planet somewhere suffering. Affliction, Nahum 1.9, affliction shall not rise up a second time. What a wonderful promise. The devil will not rise up again. Sin will not rise up again. Will never again, affliction again, never again, a problem like this again. God will deal with it once and for all, complete, and throughout the universe, there will be no more. In Revelation 21, verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. 
Amen? Yes. It doesn't say there'll be no more pain just in heaven, but in 99.9% of God's universe, there'll be no more pain. But for billions of people who lived on this earth, they'll be stuck in some little corner somewhere in 1% or 0.1% of the universe, and they will still be experiencing pain. They will still be experiencing crying. They will still be experiencing suffering. No. No. No more pain. No more crying. No more tears anywhere. For the former is done away, passed away. It's been burned up. It's been melted away. It's been changed. No more. That's what the Bible says. That's in harmony with the character of God. It's how he deals with sin in our lives. It's what he does to the carnal nature. And that's what he's going to do to this planet. Revelation 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It creates a whole new earth. How did that fire creates a whole new earth? Wherein dwells righteousness. And in 2 Peter 3, 13, Nevertheless, we, according to this promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now he has to make a new earth, he has to make a new heavens because we sent all those satellites up there. He has to destroy those too. He has to get rid of that stuff, all the garbage that we put up there too. All the pollution, all the junk. New heavens. Everything pure and fresh. New heavens, new earth. With righteousness and joy and happiness forevermore. And the wicked gone. They're gone, done away. The devil destroyed. Evil angels destroyed. As though they had never been for all eternity living with the Lord. Experiencing everlasting life. So will the, the, the devil and those who follow him surely die? Or not surely die? Surely die. Whom do you believe? So in a moment when we pray, if formally you believe they didn't surely die, that they continue on in pain and torture and suffering in an everlasting, ongoing hell somewhere, and you now see with your eyes that that was a lie of the devil, perpetuated for 6,000 years, and you want to surrender that to the Lord again. It's going to take a miracle of God to break your mind on that, to break your pattern, to break the thinking. More than just a logical choice. Satanic spiritual battle. And so in a moment, if you want to pray, and ask God to cleanse your mind, to free your mind, to liberate you from that horrible picture of God, a tormentor, and to fill your mind with a loving God, a just God, who will enact justice yet mercy and love even for the wicked. And in a moment when we pray, you can ask God to do that in your mind and in your heart. Secondly, if you know people who have turned away from God, maybe this is the reason. Maybe they haven't verbalized it, maybe they haven't said it, maybe they haven't realized it themselves consciously. They've had a hard time harmonizing this God of love, 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 love with one who's going to torment people for eternity. Or allow all the wicked to go to heaven too. And they've had that disconnect and thus have thrown everything out and thrown God out. And you want God to use you in sharing this liberating truth with them. 
in a moment when we pray, ask God to empower you, touch your lips, speak through you with his word. Third, if you want to just thank God, if this has been liberating to you, and you now appreciate God more and have a broader understanding of God's love and see him more loving than ever before, loving even to the wicked, merciful even to the wicked and allowing them just to be as if they never were. You want to thank him for that. Thank him for his complete justice and his complete dealing with sin. And he deals with it, he does away with it. You want to thank him and praise him that he is balanced, that he is just and loving. In a moment we pray you can thank him for that. Let it become part of your life that we also can be just and loving and have right boundaries and righteous boundaries and healthy boundaries, both for us and others, just as God does. We don't have to be codependent, nor do we have to lash out in anger and revenge. We can have that balance that God has. And so if you want that truth kind of lived out in your life, this whole process, again, as we picture God, the image of God is how we will live out. If we've had a picture of God that he's tormenting people forever, then we will have a hard time forgiving people. If we have a picture of God that he lets everyone into heaven, even the wicked, then, then we'll let people walk all over us and abuse us and be codependent. But we have this balance that God has, justice and mercy, truth and righteousness, love and law, then we'll be able to act that way as well. So whichever area applies to you, let's let, pray and let God do his work. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you that you are a loving God. You truly are love. And your word is truth. What you told Adam and Eve from the beginning is true. And all your words are true and righteous. Thank you, Lord, for revealing to us very plainly and very clearly over and over again throughout your word how you will deal with the sin problem. Thank you for sharing that with us. Liberate us. Free our minds and our hearts from the deception of the devil. Break Satan's hold that he's had over us. Forgive us, Lord, for believing that lie and, and maybe even teaching it and perpetuating it. Forgive us, Lord, deliver our minds, cleanse our minds and our hearts of that wickedness. We apologize, Lord, for thinking of you that way. Cleanse us. Free us. Let us see you as you truly are. Open our minds and our hearts and our vision to get a right picture of your character and then live that out in our lives in righteousness and in justice, in goodness and in truth, in love and in law and in peace. And in Yeshua's name, amen.